In Luke chapter 20, as we begin the chapter, we remember that Jesus is in the last few days of his life before the crucifixion. And he's in Jerusalem, and it's filled with tension and controversy. Tension because the religious leaders are after him. Jesus is a wanted man. They've put out an announcement that if anybody can get Jesus secretly to grab him and take him away, that's recorded for us in the Gospel of John. But there's also controversy because Jesus is doing dramatic things. Instead of hiding out in a safe house, he's going up into the Temple Mount, the most public place in all of Jerusalem, and he's turning over the tables of those who buy and sell merchandise, and he's cleansing the temple, saying that it must be a house of prayer for all nations. Now, in the midst of this, there were people who wanted to trap Jesus and to get him to sort of accuse himself in front of the Roman authorities. Well, here, let's take a look. Let's just begin here. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 20. Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him saying, tell us by what authority are you doing these things or who is he who gave you this authority? So Jesus is here doing his work, doing his ministry on the temple mount when suddenly he's confronted by a group of religious leaders And these guys were the officials. These guys were the guys with the collars, the guys with the robes, the guys with the clergy parking spots, whatever it is that would associate them with the religious establishment. These were those guys. And what they want to know is a very simple thing from Jesus. Verse 2 says, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Listen, Jesus of Nazareth. We know that you're not a trained rabbi. You didn't come up through our rabbinical schools. You didn't play the game and pay your dues in the normal way that everybody else did when they became a rabbi. What gives you the right to come up to the temple and start teaching the Bible? It's a very interesting question that I'm really not going to talk about tonight. I'm going to dance around it and just move on. But what gives someone the authority to teach the word of God. Have you ever thought about that? What gives somebody the authority to teach the word of God? I should probably teach on that sometime. But we know it's pretty simple for Jesus, isn't it? Because Jesus replies here in verse three. But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned amongst themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I love Jesus. In replying to their question, their question to Jesus was this, by what authority do you do this? So Jesus replied to their question with a question. And what was his question? He said, okay, the baptism of John, tell me about it. Was it from heaven or from men? He said, look, I'm going to try to expose your hypocrisy here. I want you to make a decision on John. You tell me. Was he from God or was he just a man who did things on his own initiative? Because you know what? 
Just like Jesus, John did not come up through the rabbinical schools. John was a guy outside the established system. And so this very important and legitimate question gets asked by Jesus. Did you see how they replied? Verse 7 says, they answered that they did not know where it was from. Now, you know what I find fascinating when they kind of reveal what was going on in the discussion among the religious leaders? They did not care a moment for a truthful answer to the question. Isn't that amazing to you? Not for one moment did they say, well, what's the actual truthful answer to the question? Was it true? They didn't consider it as a question. What's true in the matter? All they cared about was political posturing. All they cared about was the benefit or the effects of saying one answer or another. They cared nothing for truth, and that's exactly what Jesus wanted to expose in these men. You come here asking me questions, asking me by what authority I do things. Let me tell you something. You men, you don't care a thing for the truth. And because you don't care a thing for the truth, I don't have time for you. I'm not going to answer your question. Jesus had an amazingly open and generous heart to true seekers. To people who were really seeking after the truth to people who really wanted to know something about God and really wanted to know the truth about God. Jesus was very open and very generous with them. But to the cynical, hypocritical, lying people who just shade the truth and don't care about truth, but just care about political posturing, Jesus, I don't even want to talk to you. All right, I'll move on. Verse 9. Then he began to tell the people this parable. Okay, you got to set the scene. He, he, just, he, just, he just slapped down the religious leaders pretty good. And can you see them? Picture this in your mind. Let the movie roll in your head. They're all murmuring off to the side. Well, how can he say that about this? He's not going to answer our question. Maybe we should have answered different. They're all murmuring within themselves. And Jesus, Jesus Forgets about the religious leaders. Now he's going to speak to the people. Okay, everybody, let me have your attention here. I I, I want to tell you something. Let's start verse 9 again. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and leased it to vine dressers and went to a country for a long time. Now, this sort of tenant farming arrangement was a common practice in Jesus' day. Matter of fact, it's not all that uncommon today where somebody will own a piece of land, but they won't work it themselves. They'll hire other people to come in and work it. But this kind of arrangement was very common back in Jesus' day. As a matter of fact, archaeologists have discovered records of this sort of arrangements and disputes that arose from this kind of arrangement. So what did the man do? He planted a vineyard. Now, what's very interesting about this particular parable that Jesus is going to begin to expound in verse 9 is that not only did it refer to a common practice of the day, you know, renting out a vineyard or something like that, but it also made a very clear and unmistakable Old Testament connection. Because in Isaiah chapter 5, God has an extended section where he refers to Israel as his vineyard. So Jesus is tying together both a contemporary practice and something from the Old Testament that identifies Israel as the vineyard, and he draws people into this parable. In the parable that's represented both in Isaiah 5 and right here, 
the tenants or the vine dressers, they represent the religious leaders among the Jewish people. Not so much the people themselves, but again, both in Isaiah 5 and right here in the parable that Jesus will tell, he's going to explain. So what did the owner of the vineyard do? He leased it to the vine dressers. The vine dressers didn't buy the vineyard. They did not make it. They did not own it. They were allowed to work it by the generous owners. Now let's go to verse 10 and continue on. Now, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty, empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned amongst themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Pretty shocking parable, isn't it? It's shocking on many levels. First of all, the conduct of the vine dressers is absolutely shocking. The way that they do not keep their agreement with the owner. Look, the owner didn't rent out the, uh, the land and the vineyard to the vine dressers just so they could keep everything and steal the land from them. No, it was just a normal arrangement. And they were not faithful to their arrangement whatsoever. They turned against the owner and they murdered his servants. And finally, they had it in their heart to murder the son. And yet the day was going to come when they would be punished for their rebellion. It got so bad, you saw it there in verse 13, that the owner of the vineyard said this, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. He sent servants. And of course, these would be represented by the prophets of old. He sent the prophets to speak to the people in the vineyard again and again. Please, please give me what's mine. I'm here to collect what rightfully belongs to the owner. They turned him away until finally when he sent the son, he sent him with the hope. You saw that line in verse 13? Probably they will respect him. But they didn't. Did you see verse 14? This is such a shocking and wicked statement. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. They thought that they could benefit by murdering the one who had the right to inherit the vineyard. They thought they could somehow get ahead of the game by doing that. And they were seriously wrong in that foolish assumption. Now, by the way, this parable isn't very difficult to figure out, is it? By the way, I should say this as well. That's my second, by the way, in the same sentence almost. It wasn't hard to figure out for the religious leaders. They knew exactly what Jesus spoke of here. But don't you see that Jesus is so aware, it's in the very front of his mind, his own death. When he said, and they killed the son, don't you think he knows who the son is in the story? 
He's talking about himself and his own soon death that would actually happen in just a few days from uttering these words. But now we're going to pick it up in the middle of verse 16. Ready? He's going to apply the parable, the middle of verse 16. And when they had heard it, they said, certainly not. Now, stop right there. Why did they say certainly not? What were they objecting to? I've read some commentators who believed that the certainly not applied to their horror at the actions of the vine dressers in the story. I can't believe that he would kill one servant or beat one servant and then beat a second servant and then beat a third servant and then they would go all the way to kill the son. I can't believe that these people in the story would do that. Oh, it horrifies us so much. I don't think that that's why they said certainly not. They said certainly not because they totally understood that Jesus was speaking about them. What's my evidence for this? Well, look at it right there. Verse 19 I haven't gotten there yet. Well, maybe I should read the whole section. Let's start in the middle of verse 16 again. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Then he looked at them and he said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But whom on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him But they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. How much more clear could it be? Those religious leaders who came and haughtily demanded, by what authority do you do these things? Jesus looked them square in the eye and they said, you are the ones who are rejecting the Son of God and judgment is going to come upon you for that. You are the ones who are rejecting the Messiah of God. And to make this concrete, to really spell it out, look at what he says in verse 17. He quotes from Psalm 118, that amazing line, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now friends, sometimes we get it so wrong when we think about the Jews in the first century, the ones that Jesus had interaction with and the religious leaders. Sometimes we treat them as sort of cartoon figures. And we fail to realize that these were serious people who had a serious devotion to God and they seriously knew the Bible. And yet we ask ourselves, how could they get it so wrong? How could they miss the Messiah that was right in front of them? And I'll tell you how they could. And this is where we need to listen up. Because we can miss the work of Jesus the same way. The same way we can miss the work of Jesus. Was they had it all predetermined in their mind exactly how the work of the Messiah would be. We will know the work of the Messiah just like this. He's going to wipe out the Romans and he's going to lift up Israel to prominence once again among all the nations of the earth. That's the kind of Messiah we're looking for. Now there are many, many passages in the Old Testament that speak of the Messiah suffering, of the Messiah being a sacrifice, of the Messiah being rejected. And for whatever reason, their eyes were blind to those passages. And you and I need to seriously get on our knees before the Lord and say, God, if there are things about your nature, your character, your work that I am blind to, Would you please heal me of this blindness? And so Jesus calls him out. 
you guys don't understand that the scriptures themselves tell us that the chief cornerstone, the Messiah himself, it's going to be rejected by the builders. Yet nevertheless, it will be the chief cornerstone in building the structure that God is going to build. Now listen, I'm not really a builder or a construction guy, and even less do I know about the methods of ancient construction. But it's a very interesting thing, this idea of the chief cornerstone. Because it's not just a stone laid on the bottom of the building, or it's not one of those ceremonial you know, cornerstones that people make when they're doing a fancy building. No, in some way, whatever it was in the ancient world, and whatever construction techniques they did, this cornerstone was something that gave solid foundation to the entire structures of the walls. Everything was tied into that particular stone. They relate it like this. Like, you know how an arch has a capstone at the very top? Well, it's the same principle, except it's on the floor. It's not in an arch. If you take away that cornerstone, the whole structure crumbles. But you can build. It has the strength. It has the footing. It has the power to build the whole structure upon it. And Jesus says, you guys are rejecting that stone. It's the stone that the builders rejected. But you know what? God hasn't rejected it. He's going to make it the chief cornerstone. Therefore, he can give this very heavy verse. Verse 18. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Anyone who comes to Jesus is going to be broken of their pride and self-sufficiency. We really don't preach that very often, do we? Come on, everybody. Come to Jesus and get broken. Come fall on the chief cornerstone and get broken. Get broken of your pride. Get broken of your self-sufficiency. Get broken of all your self-trust. Get broken of all your idolatry. Get completely broken of all that. You say, well, I, I don't want that. Okay, well, fine. Here's the alternative. The stone will fall upon you and you'll get crushed to powder. You'll be utterly destroyed. And then we say, can I have option one again? And this is the work of the Messiah. And you can just imagine the tension as Jesus describes this with the, but the, with the, among the religious leaders. But please understand, what he's really trying to give them insight in is that they had closed their eyes to significant passages in the Old Testament that spoke of the suffering of the Messiah, of the sacrifice of the Messiah, and the rejection of the Messiah. And he says, this is in the scriptures too. And I have come to fulfill this aspect of the Messiah's work. Verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order him to deliver him to the power and to the authority of the governor. Isn't that a heavy verse right there? They watched him. Oh, we didn't get him on. We tried to trap him. It just keeps blowing up in our face. The trap, what are we going to do? I don't know. Let's really put him under close observation. They watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and to the authority of the government. Then they asked him saying, teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly and that you do not show personal favoritism, but you teach the way of God in truth. Stop right there. Oh, come now, really? Isn't this fascinating? It's fascinating that, first of all, they're doing such underhanded tactics to try to get to Jesus. You see, 
They wished they could just go in there and arrest Jesus and carry him off. But they couldn't. You know why they couldn't? Because public opinion was with Jesus. You see, the public understood that many, I don't know if I'd say most, but let's just say many among the religious leadership were corrupt. And they were happy to challenge him. Yeah, yeah, what about that? You can imagine people from the crowd shouting out when Jesus would make these points against the religious leaders. Yeah, what about that? And so that he has enough popularity among the crowd that if they tried to seize Jesus publicly, there'd be a riot, and they can't risk the riot. It'd be too much public commotion. So they say, we've got to trap him. We've got to get him to cut his own throat by his own words. So let's send forth spies. It's very interesting. Adam Clark says this, that the original behind spies right there has this idea to let down, to set in ambush, one who crouches in some secret place to spy, listen, catch, or hurt. And then they said this, no doubt the persons mentioned in the text were men of the basest principles and uh, hired by the malicious Pharisees to do what they attempted in vain to perform. So they hired some professional hitmen, do some opposition research on Jesus, some social media hits on him, whatever they could get to try to disgrace him. You notice how they come to him in verse 21? This is fantastic. Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. I'm a little surprised that the next verse isn't, and Jesus said, excuse me while I throw up. (laughs) Oh, really? Now suddenly I'm Mr. Wonderful, am I? Is that how you're going to come at me? This was an obvious, I would describe it even as a clumsy attempt to influence Jesus with flattery. They hoped Jesus was insecure enough. Oh, you like me? You really like me now? That Jesus was insecure enough or, or foolish enough to buy into this flattery. Obviously, it had no effect whatsoever on Jesus. Can, can we quote our guy, the Puritan, John Trapp, on this? I like his line on this. John Trapp says, Here is a fair glove drawn upon a foul hand. (laughs) Thank you, John Trapp. That's Shakespearean, isn't it? A fair glove drawn upon a foul hand. Okay, verse 22. Here's the question. Here's the trap. Here they go. They're sort of baiting the trap with flattery. Now they hope to spring it. You see the little smile that comes across their face as they ask this question because they thought about this question. Opposition research has told him this is the question. You ask this question, bam, he's wasted. There's no way out of this one. It's done. It's over. Drop the microphone. Walk off the stage. It's done after this one. Ready? Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's the question. Come on, Jesus, yes or no answer. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It seems like such a simple question. You give a yes or a no answer, but actually, given the political and the cultural environment of the day, it was an extremely complicated question. It was a question with a dilemma baked into it. Because if Jesus said that taxes should be paid, then he could be rightly, or at least semi-rightly, accused of siding with the Roman domination and oppression over Israel. 
Oh, so Jesus, you think we should pay tribute money to the Romans. You think we should recognize them as our overlords. You think we should recognize them with all of that. Oh, Jesus, you're a fair friend of Israel, are you? That's the one side of the dilemma. But if Jesus answers on the other side and says, no way, man, don't pay those taxes. Forget about Caesar. Then all they have to do is send that report back to Pontius Pilate, who, if he was not already in Jerusalem, he was on his way to be there for the Passover season and say, here is a prominent and popular Jewish teacher who openly teaches rebellion and, worst of all, tells people not to pay their taxes. What a dilemma for Jesus. It seems like he is in a box canyon. There's no way out. What are you going to do, Jesus? Does anybody have any worries about Jesus in this one? Verse 23, but he perceived their craftiness. I would give $100 right now if I had it in my pocket. But if I, if I had $100 right now, I would give it to see the look on Jesus' face when he answered them. I, I don't know what it was like. I, I wish it was he looked through them with laser beams. Maybe. who knows there might have been the most profound look of love on his face there might have been the most profound look of love in his eyes that said you guys don't get it do you 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 can't step in the ring with me your arms are too short to box with me just forget about it it's not going to happen I don't know what the look on his face was, but he answered this, verse 23. He perceived their craftiness and he said to them, why do you test me? Why? How long is this going to go on? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. I don't know if there was exasperation in the voice of Jesus when he said, why do you test me? But if there was, I don't think it was only on his own behalf, such as, why do you keep hassling me this way? I don't think that's it. It's like, how foolish can you be to think you can still keep battling against me and win? You're never going to get the best of me. How many rounds do you want this to go? You're going to lose every round. Why do you test me? And then he asked him that question, verse 24. Whose image and inscription does it have? You see, an ancient Roman coin had a very visible image of Caesar, whichever particular season Caesar was there at the time that the coin was minted. And it had an inscription upon it as well. The common coin in that day had this inscription on it. It said this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus Augustus. So not only did it say this was Caesar's coin, but it also called him God. The divine Augustus, the most noble Caesar, so to speak. The image and the inscription of the ancient coin would also have been understood in that day and age as a property seal. You see, nobody thinks that way today. We don't pull a coin out of our pocket. Do I even have a coin? Yes, I have a dime right here. Nobody thinks, gee, this dime belongs to Franklin Roosevelt. Nobody thinks that. But that's how they thought in the ancient world. Look, it's like a seal. It has his face. It has his inscription. The coin belongs to Caesar. He just lets us use it. That was the mentality in those days. Now, by the way, I, 
I think, and I just sort of got thinking about it this week when I was studying. Could you not look at the inscriptions on our coins and gain a spiritual lesson from them? What three phrases are inscribed on all of our coins? Three things that I know of. I mean, I'm not some expert, but pretty much every coin I look at has three phrases. First of all, in God we trust. So ask yourself, am I trusting in God? Secondly, inscribed on the coin right there is liberty. Jesus Christ set me free for the sake of liberty, not legalistic bondage. Am I walking in the liberty of Jesus Christ? And then thirdly, e pluribus unum, which is Latin for out of many, one. And this speaks to us of the unity that we should have in the body of Christ. Now, I'm not trying to say that that's what they intended, but that's a spiritual lesson you can grab. Did you know you don't even need to open your Bible to get a Bible study? You could just look at a coin in your own pocket. Out of many, one. That's what God has done with us as the body of Christ. He's drawn us out of many and he's made us one body. Now look, I think all three of those phrases have an important and a valid application to the American ideal and to the American coins that they represent. I'm not trying to say that, but it just struck me how Jesus drew an application from the Roman coins of his day. We could draw application from our own coins in our own day. But here's the point. Look at it now at verse 25. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in the words, in his words, in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. What was this answer that was so profound that it positively shut up? the hired hitmen who were out there to get Jesus. I mean, there was nothing more to say. There was just, uh, 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 there was nothing they could say. What was it? Take a look, this phrase, verse 25. Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's the first part of it. Jesus affirmed that the government makes legitimate requests of us. We are responsible to God in all things. But we must be obedient to the government in matters both civil and national. We have a legitimate obligation to our government. And friends, I want you to recognize that Jesus said this of a Roman government that was far more corrupt and tyrannical as our, uh, than our own. I mean, you you might have problems with our own government, whether it be in the city or the county or the state or the nation or whatever. You may have your own political objections or whatever. I mean, and I understand that. I get all that. But I, I don't think anybody would dispute that the government in Rome was more corrupt and tyrannical than than we have in our own day, at least in the 21st century in the United States of America. Nevertheless, Jesus told them, The government has some legitimate claim over to you. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I like the way that Peter put it in his letter. In 1 Peter 2, verse 17, by the way, Peter heard Jesus say these words. So maybe this was his interpretation. He said this, fear God, honor the king. Honor the king. There's a place for that. There's a place for you to give recognition and obedience and, and, and just honor to Proper governmental authority. You could say this, that every citizen has a double, excuse me, every Christian has a double citizenship. 
He's a citizen of the country in which he lives. And he should be a faithful and and an honorable member of that community. But yet, there's something else that he owes, and we'll get to that in a moment. By the way, one other thing. When he says in verse 25, render, the idea behind that ancient Greek word is actually to give back. In other words, Caesar gives some things to you. He gives you his coins so you can exchange money. He gives you order in your public realm. He gives you roads that you travel and trade on. Caesar gives you some things. Therefore, give back to him some things that is appropriate. Caesar has a legitimate sphere. However, look at the second half of the statement. Again, verse 25, where he says, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When Jesus held that coin, and by the way, I can't get past the the, the irony in it, that the coin that held that hand, excuse me, the coin, let's turn it around here. Help me out, I can get myself out of this. The hand that held that coin, that's what I was trying to say, isn't it? The hand that held that coin would shortly be pierced by Caesar himself or Caesar's representative. He said, look, the fact that you use Caesar's coin and it has his image on it shows this principle that you owe something to Caesar. You have God's image on you. Just as surely as that coin was stamped with an imperfect image of Caesar. So you are stamped with a, not perfect, but it is nevertheless the image of God upon you. You owe your life, your soul, as Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's what you owe to God. Because his image is upon you. I'll read you something from Adam Clark. I think it's very wise. He says, this establishes the limits, it regulates the rights, and it distinguishes the jurisdictions of the two empires of heaven and earth. The image of princes stamped on their coin denotes that temporal things belong to the government. The image of God stamped on the soul denotes that all its faculties and powers belong to the Most High and should be employed in its service. And here's one other thing for you to consider. God made promises to the Jewish people under the Old Covenant. And the promises were this. If you honor me the way that you should, never will another nation rule over you. The mere fact that they had to render unto Caesar what Caesar required demonstrated that they had not rendered to God what they should have rendered to God. And so Jesus says, civil government has its sphere, but God is over all. And we render unto him what is due to him. Verse 26, and we'll finish with this. They could not catch him in his words. You see, Jesus gave a perfectly wise and appropriate answer to his question. Nevertheless, they took this perfect answer, and would you believe it? They twisted it into an accusation. In Luke chapter 23, verse 2, 
they later on accused Jesus of forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Isn't that just crazy ironic? Jesus gave the perfect answer. The perfect answer. You couldn't answer better than this. And they still lied about it and used it against him in his trial before Pilate. You know, I find this fascinating that today men still try to catch Jesus in his words. Have you ever, I, have you ever heard these guys, ooh, you know, Jesus was really a charlatan or a fool or a bad guy, blah, blah, blah. Look at how that's, and you know, when people try to catch Jesus in his words, they always fail, even today, and, and, here's the big one. They can only make Jesus look bad by lying about what he said. It's the same way today. And all I can say is, I want to so walk with the Lord that that would be true of me. That if somebody's going to say something bad about me, they got to lie about me to do it. Wouldn't that be a beautiful place to be? And as the image of Jesus Christ becomes more real in each and every one of us, as we walk with him in the path that God has given us to walk, I think more and more so it will be that. Father, we are so aware and in awe of the fact that you have stamped your image upon our soul. So therefore, Lord, with great humility, we ask, we ask, Lord, yes, we want to honor our country the way that we should. We do want to render unto Caesar, so to speak, as we should. This is what you said to do. But with even greater passion, we want to render unto you the things that belong to you. And that begins with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Thank you for that, Lord. And thank you for the amazing wisdom of Jesus and that nobody has trapped him yet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.